Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam, here with Andy. Andy, what's going on, man? Uh, happy Wednesday. You as well, dude. Um, man, it's, it's always terrible to get back into the groove of work. The first week back at work after a, a holiday break, it's very much like school as a child. You're just like... Uh, and it's weird because, like, by the end of, like, a prolonged absence from work, I'm kind of ready to get back. Yeah. Like, I anxiety builds up. But, man, the first week back where it's just, like, digging through 100 emails that I didn't look at over the break and, like, trying to transition stuff from last year. And uh, it's a nightmare. So. There, there really is a happy medium. Like, I'll sit there after hard weeks of work and be like, man, I can't wait to be retired. And then I'll have a lengthy amount of time off where I don't do anything or, like, work might be slow. And then I'm just like, man, this is boring so i i kind of i need a balance oh yeah i mean i i used to like marvel at like old people that would get like a low-skilled job like cassie has uh people in her retirement home that like get a job as a like they're rich people and they get like a job as a greeter at walmart and i was like why would you do that and then you talk to them and they're just like man like just never leaving or going anywhere or having anything you have to do after like 30 years is kind of you know mind numbing and it and actually like medically speaking it's like bad for you to have no obligations for decades i'm very yeah i'm very hopeful for our generation that like i know that for elderly people not having a lot of challenges like brain stimulating challenges can be like you said a detriment to your health but our generation is so into like video games (laughs) and so i feel like i'm gonna be an old head sitting there playing ncaa or playing like civilization and hopefully that'll help me not age as fast at least mentally it'll be so crazy that like we'll be like yeah i'm gonna sit down and play this you know strategy game on my pc and they'll be like uh you're not gonna play virtual reality through your mind chip and we'll be like no i never actually got that i you know i wasn't comfortable with it and they'll be like all right boomer whatever bro like (laughs) i never thought i would be the one to like fall out of fads but i've got cousins that are younger than me that will do things that i could go completely over my head reference things reference songs or like actors and stuff oh dude in language like slang has now passed me by like we've we even like in the professional world like we've started to hire people that are like 22 you know they're like right out of college or 10 years younger than me and they just have like a different vocabulary right. than i do and it, it, it catches me sometimes like the other day this kid that's like he's brand new he's just out of college and he was like he used the term cracked to reference something being really good like so he's like that's Never cracked and I had to be like, what, is that, what does that mean? And apparently that's – and I looked it up. It is very widely used. So wow, I'm okay. just that's, that's new for me too. Like, so I was like, no, this has got to be regional. This kid's from Ohio or something. And no, I'm cool. I promise. Like, no, I'm not. Yeah, it's probably a weird phrase from Minnesota. But yeah. It's, 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 it's definitely just like on TikTok. You know what I mean? Like it's just like one of those things. Dude, my, my recent example that is – I know who she is now obviously. But I would say like eight months ago to a year ago, I didn't know who Olivia Rodrigo is. Do you know who that is? Yeah, I was kind of like on the periphery of knowing who she was too. Like I, I, she for me it was kind of like she came out of nowhere. I saw one of her songs was like a was huge, and I was like, "Who is this person?" And then I, when I looked it up, I kind of felt dumb because I was like, "Oh, she's she's clearly very big." And yeah, I she has like billions of streams. Of and then also she was on, yeah. which I didn't realize this either, but she was on a Disney Channel show for years. So she's been a big deal for a long time. Yeah. I saw an interesting comparison the other day of Nickelodeon and Disney both tried to do that, you know, like create child stars and Disney did it really effectively with like Miley Cyrus and now with Olivia Rodrigo and Nickelodeon only did one and they did it by accident. Yeah. Uh, Cause Ariana Grande was a side character on a show and they featured a different girl on that show all the time. Be like, this is going to be the one. Yeah, Victoria and while they had one of the biggest yeah, stars in the that. world, like in the um, background. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you're you're forgetting about Big Time Rush. Who I, dude, I, I apologize for my Big Time Rush slander. That is definitely a, a, the cultural zeitgeist will never forgive me for forgetting Big Time Rush and their impact on our... There is a weird, like, I think it's kind of one of those, like, it's a joke, but it's a totally real thing about, like, kind of like bronies. Mm-hmm. Where people stand, big time rush. I don't That's fair. It, I mean, dude, I, I one thing I will say that I do think has improved significantly from when I was a kid, and I think when you were a kid too, is when we were kids, there was a very distinct set of things that were cool for everyone. And everyone had to like those things. And if you didn't like those things, you were not cool. And you had to kind of like keep certain things that you liked to yourself. 
if you didn't want to be like a nerd or whatever. And now the internet right. has democratized cool and things fads are so small and niche and quick, like fast fashion, like dressing, like we all dressed the same in high school. Like everyone had a uniform practically. And now because of like right. exposure to the internet, like if you are really into like vintage anime, dude, you can find a million people that are also into that. And there's also people probably at your school that have also found that. And so there's almost nothing that is like taboo socially as far as like being uncool anymore, which I think is awesome. Yeah. You could be like that guy on that viral video today. That's like watching Tucker, <laughs> Tucker Carlson, Carlson at that basketball game. That's a lot, dude. That's, that's a lot. You can watch that Tucker guy, anytime. As like, he was eating like a huge, huge, uh, like hot dog with everything. Yeah, on dude, it. That so guy like, was, this in, guy's got a lot going he on. He was right in now. his, he was in his element. He was like, I've got everything I need right here. <laughs> dude, apparently, well, you know, speaking of interests and standing things like Big Time Rush, if you want to stand us, then you can by liking, subscribing, uh, and following us wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. We greatly appreciate that. And I think most importantly, I've started to say this lately, but tell two friends. Yes. Want to get the word, word of out. mouth is appreciate crucial. you guys. Yeah. So um, also speaking of things that people might give you a hard time for hating let's talk about uh <laughs> let's talk about the book or the topic for today's podcast which is the da vinci code by dan Brown. i'm excited for this dude this is i think a really cool uh episode for us because you had not read this book coming into uh us deciding to believe it or this. not had not read the da vinci code so the da vinci code yeah. is uh one is probably one of the more like popular novels to come out in the last decade or two uh, this was a huge cultural phenomenon. It got its own... Or like 30 years. Yeah, yeah. for sure. It's, yeah. it's pretty old. Um, and for me, it was really right up my alley, even though I was pretty young when I read this. Uh, I'm I'm a pretty big art guy, I've and it's it, it was really awesome to revisit this. I'm right in the middle of reading several books about art, and so this was really cool to like dive into this. I, I also think that... Uh, I'm not going to say I blame this book, but this book definitely... You can trace a lot of like very popular mainstream conspiracy theory thought to this book. I don't know if many people knew the term Illuminati before this book came out, but certainly it became very like popularly used to describe like shadowy powers that be after this book came out. As a young person reading this book, uh, I found so much of this incredibly fascinating. Uh, it's I think what it does, I'll say this off the top, is that what I think this book does so well is it masquerades as a, a book for smart people. Like like people that read this book think that they're reading a book for smart people, but they're not. Like this is not a, yeah. an incredibly historically accurate or – it was probably well-researched but not like absurdly so. Like everything you're going to read in this book about art or about stuff is not – particularly accurate uh, other than he did do a really good job with like locations like when they go to like cities and stuff he did a really good job uh with like ancient locations and things like that but very similar in phenomena to like the big bang theory which is like a a show about smart people or that seems like a smart show but it's it's for dumb people this is the book version of that to me is like people read this book and oh, they're 100%. like oh yeah dude i know all this stuff about michelangelo now and like how you know, the Bible works and the Catholic Church. And interestingly, this was one of the first times I really felt like there was a popular questioning of, like, the Catholic Church is hiding something. And it turned out they were hiding something much different than this and probably much more horrible. But we'll get into that a little yeah. later, I'm sure. But, yeah, what are your initial thoughts? I wanna... Hopefully we won't get it. Hopefully we won't get into that a little later. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I, I will say that before I get into my thoughts, I wanted to touch on two of the things you talked about, which were... You talked about it being well-researched. You talked about the locations and, and things of that nature. I I will say that is probably the one thing that has gotten the most criticism out of this book, more so than like the writing style or whatever, like twists is at the beginning of the book, when you open up the cover, it has this paragraph that like describes what Opus Dei is. I think that's how you say it, right? Opus Dei, the, is that the yeah, organization? Yeah, And yep. describes like certain organizations. And then it has this little line at the bottom that, basically says like let me let me open it actually before i don't i don't want to misread it but um give me one moment i'll i'll read it verbatim it says all descriptions nice. of artwork architecture documents and secret rituals in this novel are accurate that line has gotten him into a lot of trouble because not not legal trouble but just the fact that like 
he put that in there and then he on his book tours and in his subsequent interviews with like 60 minutes and all these different things he like is very proud of the historical accuracy of this novel which is it's kind of mind-blowing to me that that's what he's proud of is the historical sure. accuracy because which is weird because it's like that's not what i would be proud of if i wrote this because i think it's a really good story like he he wrote an a a gripping adventure that like kind of touched on a lot of very interesting ideas and like I think what this does so well is it takes properties and ideas that we're familiar with, right? Like all these paintings that we've seen, like as an elementary school kid, like the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper and all these things. And even like quasi conspiracy theories, like not necessarily conspiracy theories to the point of like, oh, the Catholic Church is hiding that Jesus was married, but more like Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci painted this painting you know, in such a way because they viewed this. Like, those are common kind of quasi-conspiracy theories in the art world. Right. And he took those ideas and expanded on them, like, to the nth degree, right? And I thought that was a really fun kind of thought experiment, uh, especially because he touched on some things that I do think are, are important as far as, like, the Catholic Church's editing of women out of the history of the early church. Like, those are real things that happened. So those those were fun for me. But to act like, yeah, like, by the way, Opus Dei is a terrorist organization is... That's strange to be like, that's what I'm going to stand on is what I did well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to sit there and say, like, he says all artwork and documents are, like, are told factually. And then to have, like, 90% of the plot hinge on the fact that, like, the <laughs> the reveal by... I'm actually... I can't remember the, the guy's name. The guy who's, like, the Sir, the, the British guy. T-Bring. T-Bring. To be, like, yeah. sitting next to Jesus in the Last Supper is Mary Magdalene. It's like... No, that's John. Even before I read the novel, I knew that. It's yeah, I mean that. But again, again, that's like a very commonly repeated thing that like there's been a very old debate about how he painted that. Now the whole like it's a V which represents the Grail. That never heard that before. But before this book ever came out, there was a very there's been a wide ranging discussion about is the person standing next to Jesus in the Last Supper a woman? Like, did he paint it that way on purpose? Similar to when they painted the the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, where the moment of creation mural, where you know God is reaching out and touching Adam, they're touching fingers. Very famous painting. The background of God it looks like a human brain, and so there's always been this discussion about like was Michelangelo effectively stating like God is an invention of the human yeah, mind yeah. there, like. That's where I always took it was it's like it's less about the conspiracy theory of like, you know, the actual people in the painting, but more about the painter. Like, was that his idea? And that's where it stops. But yeah, Dan Brown seemed to take that to uh, a much, much, much farther place as far as, you know, this is all confirmed as if he was kind of revealing to people that that was the case. When in fact, like you could certainly find like a group of 10 fringe academics that probably think that's the case but i certainly don't think that's popularly accepted the other thing that i wanted to talk talk about is how you hinted at how well researched like locations are and things and this goes into stylistically my biggest problem with the novel when you talk about writing and especially writing description there's let's say that you're talking about somebody that's eating a bowl of soup you know uh good description would be considered like pointing out the pertinent details like the now cold bowl of soup showed his gloomy reflection or something like that, right? Showing the scene, right? Sure. And then purple prose might be just going on and on about the shape of the bowl and how much soup is in there and things like that. Um, What Dan Brown effectively does is say, the bowl of soup is a Campbell's bowl of soup. Campbell's originated in Paris, Texas. Paris, Texas is the county seat of Texarkana, which is located in Northeast Texas. And it's like, dude, I get it. Like when he's describing Paris, he doesn't talk about the way that the lights are reflecting off the city and the people around and like the chill in the air. He just is like, if you turn to your right, you see this building, which is next to this building, which is next to this bridge. And I'm like, I'm just like, dude, I don't care. Get to the point. Or like, tell me something that affects the mood or or is like foreshadowing something. Like I just, as you read this novel, you can a hundred percent skip entire pages because it's just describing stuff that doesn't matter and is just showing how much he knows about the city of Paris. In fact, I I actually did try that on a few chapters. We're like, to your point, it it is a page turner. And so you can read the first few lines in each chapter. And then if you just read like the last three paragraphs in each chapter, um, because they're such short chapters, you can get through parts of the book just by doing that and skip over his bad description. 
Yeah, I I guess for me, especially when it comes to places like European cities that tend to be like very landmark heavy, getting an understanding of physical location for me yeah. it does help as far as like getting an understanding of where a character is. But yeah, certainly, and, and again, you've been to a lot of these places and I have not. And so like for me, I don't know where the Louvre is in relation to this bridge or the Arc de Triomphe. Part of why this book was successful was because like, some Midwestern housewife in Des Moines could read this and be like, oh, okay, you know, look at a map of Paris and be like, he was right here and he ran down this street and things like that. Now, that doesn't necessarily make you a good writer, but it does make you an accessible yeah. one. And that's a lot of Dan Brown's work. Like, he's a... He, I, I, I don't think he's on, you know, even aspiring to be like a Stephen King level writer. And I'm not holding up Stephen King as like, you know, Byron. I'm just saying like if, if we're tiering right. authors here... Um, I think he wants to be like a Grisham and he's written several other books and I've read, uh, I think I've read four of his novels and they're all very similar to this where it's like there's a, a kind of a, like a larger conspiracy at work and Robert Langdon is kind of using his established academic knowledge base along with uh, a slowly revealing set of clues to like unravel the mystery and there's usually a pretty big twist involved there. He's got a little bit of that Shyamalan right. formula to him. I, I really enjoyed the novel, but I didn't enjoy the movie that much. Um, and I haven't watched the movies of his other films, like Angels and Demons, which Angels and Demons is probably my favorite of his novels. It's the I think it's the one that came out right after this uh, and is, again, kind of uh, Catholic-focused. It's in yeah. Vatican City. And I don't know what... Uh, I, I have not done enough research on Dan Brown. I don't know what his beef is with the Catholic Church, but he certainly seems like he's got a bent against them. He's sneak dissing all over the place. Which, I mean, again, like, he certainly seems to come at this as if, you know, he, he definitely uses the Catholic Church as kind of this shadowy bent on keeping humanity in the darkness of ignorance organization, which I think they have been guilty of, at least sometimes in their past, but... I, I don't think you'd find many, like, suburban Catholics that fall into that category, but he goes hard at them. Yeah, when you introduced this novel to me, one of the things you'd said was you were going to be interested to see, like, if if I could see where people were coming from, because people were kind of offended by oh my this God. novel when it first Beyond came out. Dude, I remember driving down Greenville Avenue right by St. Jude's, which was, like, their, our local Catholic church, and on their, like, sign, you know how every church has their little, like, letter sign where they can put little letters in, and it says, like, you know, service at 11 a.m. on Sunday or whatever. And there right. said, um, do not read the Da Vinci Code, is what it said. Yeah, just straight up. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. And I was like, damn, dude. Like, I, which again, like the Barbara Streisand effect, man, like that's the last thing you should put on there. Like, have the father come do a seminar or something where he explains what they got wrong, but don't be like, do not read this book, because that's like the ultimate advertisement. I bet Dan Brown was stoked when he heard that people were, because that's the best advertising you can get is like, this book is oh, dangerous. For sure. Like, for sure. I kind of walked away being like, I could see where they were coming from. Sure. But I didn't really go much further than that. I think part of it is, this is a really, what I'm about to bring up is kind of nuanced. And I'd be interested to see if you push back on this. Um, but when you're doing like a uh, urban fantasy, which is really kind of what I consider this. Sure. Urban fantasy slash mystery. That seems um, to fit. There's like a nuance between when you're revealing information that is like clearly factual. And then like when you're revealing information that is clearly fictional to the world and i don't necessarily feel like he i feel like he blended the two um that's fair in 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 not a typical way like like he'll sit there and like give a page-long description stating the facts of a building and then the next page he'll give a page-long description stating the facts of opus day but oops those facts were made up and so there's a little bit of that where i could see where somebody would put down this book and say like wow was mary magdalene really like is this all real and like googling it if google existed back then but it's like oh i mean we we have certainly seen since then that like you certainly cannot rely on people to like parse conspiratorial information for themselves and and i feel like and i definitely feel like the the this book definitely it's impossible to separate this book from what you come to it with like this this book obviously deals with things that are so personal to people like this isn't a conspiracy about you know your favorite football team or a pizza place in DC or anything like that. This is about religion and religion is like the most personal, the most deeply held identity forming thing for, 
for everyone, even for people that are not religious, often that forms a huge portion of their identity. And and again, part of I, I'm going to agree with you uh, on the blending of fact and fiction. And part of the reason that that I kind of didn't like that was that again. There is real information that he talks about that I do think is worthy of discussion, like the fact that the Catholic Church went out of their way to, like, remove all female presence from the Gospels. Like, there are women in the Bible that are referred to as apostles, not the 12 apostles, but that's how they're referred to. Jesus was close with them. The Catholic Church definitely went way out of their way to make sure that they kind of threw dirt on anyone that was a female that was held an important position around Christ. Um, Mary Magdalene is a great example of that. It is never stated in the Gospels that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, but that has become like canon, basically the the, the line on her. Yeah. yeah, because and again, like the Catholic Church was the church, and they sat down many times. You know, Council of Nicaea, like many many times in history, and they were like, we got to edit this shit to make sure that it aligns with what we're currently doing. But to then again, like to put that in a paragraph right next to not only was Mary Magdalene, you know, important to Jesus and important to the church and a leader in the early faith, he was Jesus's wife, you know? And I, and I think this is going to be where you and I bring very different perspectives to this. So I would love to know how you felt about that. Like, did that as an abstract concept, not, not whether or not you believe it, because obviously we're both in agreement that that's just a fictionalized right, thing right. that Dan Brown came up with. But because I'm interested in, because I saw that so much, that that abstract concept of the idea that Jesus was not a, I guess, not a virgin, that was he was a normal man, that he would have relationships with women that extended beyond washing feet. Is that like intellectually offensive to you or does that not really bother you given that Jesus was awesome in other ways? No, that that wasn't intellectually offensive to me. I think like the part of the book that I think was probably more offensive was like you said, there are certain things that the novel points out that are 100% true about like how the Bible was constructed. But then there's also things about there about how the Bible was constructed that was 100% made up. There was some stuff in there about the the real Friday the 13th yeah. <laughs> and like, I forget exactly what it was, but like the purge or whatever of like the Christians in ancient Rome or like, and then like also the implications of a lot of the characters where there's a lot of author speak when Robert Langdon was talking with other characters and he would pretty much just be like, there was a lot of condescension, I thought of like, man, I can't believe people believe this stuff. Like there was kind of a lot of that littered into it where I think that would be more offensive than just the fictional. Yeah, I I guess for me, I could see, you know, an East Coast elite university professor speaking like that to people about their faith. Like that, that would, that would stick. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. And this kind of gets into the main criticism of the book is if we're splitting hairs about what the character would or wouldn't say a, a, a professor of what was he supposed to be religious religious symbolism yeah symbols or yeah, whatever just like, like symbols used across all world religions right that professor wouldn't believe that an apple is that is the fruit that eve ate <laughs> you know like so there so there's like i'm not gonna let him have his cake and eat it too right i'm not gonna let i'm not gonna be like wow that was a realistic line to like hate on Christians and then also let him say something that was completely outrageous yeah, in the context no, of like facts. Definitely. So yeah. And there's, a, there's an interesting, uh, dynamic. The next book that he wrote, angels and demons deals way more. He wrote that one first. I oh think. really? Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which can I talk about that for a second? Cause there's yeah. an interesting tidbit here. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Uh, so I, I don't want to get into like the chronological of this book. Cause it's like, it's like a 500 page novel, but the, the book starts out with him getting called obviously to the Louvre or the Louvre. I'm not even going to try to read the Louvre. It, but yeah. If, if they, the if, man, if that's, if that's now that I'm thinking about those in chronological order, that's crazy. Like if those, if these, if these novels exist in a shared universe, like these are supposed to be like, you know, the same Robert Langdon doing the same thing. Like the events of angels and demons would make the events of the Da Vinci code absurd. <laughs> like, well, and the, the, here's what I'm getting to is Dan Brown knew that. Because if you if you read this novel, like at the beginning, there's like four different times in the first 50 pages where Robert Langdon's internal monologue, he's like, man, I feel like I've been here before. This is very similar to a night I had a year uh, ago. okay. But they never, and so I've never read Angels and Demons. So I read that as a foreshadowing. I, I was like, what is this secret event? Yeah, I, I me too. I didn't even think about that because I, did, I truly thought – I think I just read them in that order. So I assumed that Da Vinci Code was his I was first like, novel. What is this secret event that he's referring to? Because surely he's going to come back around to that. Nope. What he was doing was just saving his ass 
to be like, yeah, I know I wrote a novel that's very similar to this, but I'm going to I'm going to speak through my character and be like, man, I've been in a similar situation and try to get away with it. I wouldn't even say it's it's that similar, but what makes it crazy is like I okay, I'm assuming you no. don't care about like spoilers for Angels and Demons. So Angels and Demons centers more around the conflict between religion and science and actually comes to a conclusion that I that I have always kind of taken even uh, regardless of where I am on my spiritual journey and that's that science and religion are not mutually exclusive that science uh, can be the, the language that God wrote the universe in um, which I've always found to be like the most for me most intellectually satisfying answer to that question um, but the book centers around uh, the Pope has died and they're electing a new Pope so the College of Cardinals is at the Vatican and the four top cardinals, like the candidates, effectively, for Pope have all been kidnapped by an ancient enemy of the Catholic Church. Also, at the same time, at CERN in Switzerland, which is like a huge, they uh, the large uh, hydrogen colliders there, like they're this incredible scientific uh, discovery place. They had invented antimatter, and that got stolen from CERN. And the chief scientist at CERN who was working on it, who was also like a lifelong Catholic, he was also murdered. And now someone has hidden this antimatter bomb in the Vatican, and Robert Langdon has to, like, help save all these cardinals and defuse this bomb before it goes off and save the, the Vatican and all the people gathered outside in St. Peter's Square. And the climax of the novel is Robert Langdon taking the bomb and going up in a helicopter, flying up high enough to get it out of range, and then jumping out of the helicopter with a parachute and this bomb going off over Rome. Very dramatic. Him parachuting down. If you were the guy that flew a suicide mission with a nuke in your arms above the Vatican while they were electing a new pope, which is on every television in the world. I mean, yeah. you've been alive for, I think, the same as I have, like, two pope elections. It's everywhere. Like, every news channel is covered. They got the little camera in the corner, like, with the smokestack, yep. like, showing you what color it is. This shit is everywhere. If you grabbed what is effectively a, a high-tech nuclear weapon jumped in a helicopter, flew up, and jumped out and parachuted dramatically away from the explosion, you would be, like, a thousand astronauts level of famous. So, like, the idea that they're just like, who is this Robert Langdon character that's showing up to the Louvre, dude? Like, that'd be, like, he would never be able to, like, go outside again. He'd be, like, Brad Pitt level famous. So that really is hard to believe. Now, again, I do like the Angels and Demons a little more because it's less about a conspiracy of, like, history and more about a conspiracy that's happening right now and so he is able to operate in complete fiction without having to like invent right, right. facts you know what i mean um and again it comes to a i will say that selfishly it comes to a conclusion that i find more intellectually satisfying this like kind of like marriage of science and religion i find that to be acceptable whereas the da vinci code comes to a conclusion that i think most people were like that's a little out there and they either fell on the side of that's out there and I don't, I'm offended by it or that's out there and I, it, it doesn't bother me. Um, I'm sure there were some crazies that were like, that's out there and I knew it all along, but you know, what are you going to do? Um, so yeah, that's interesting. The, the chronological order of those novels. And then the third one that I read was his, he did an alien book where there's aliens. Which oh, is, with Robert cool. Langdon. So, yeah. They, they discover something like an asteroid underneath an iceberg in Antarctica, and it's got alien life on it. It's going to, like, you know, answer the question yeah. of are we alone. Well, yeah, it's you talked about it being, like, a satisfying answer, like, satisfying conclusion. I, you know, my biggest thing about this book is the, the enjoyment that I had out of it wasn't really anything related to, like, the conclusion. It was more like it was a good page turner. So I'll, I'll give it... I'll give it this, I think, like, the thing that I think this novel does really well is the pacing, is it's got these short, the short choppy chapters. He did a really good job of writing good cliffhangers at the end of every chapter. I might have not necessarily been like, this is the craziest, best uh, story I've heard. I can't wait to see how it ends. Sure. It's more of like, okay, well, now I have to know what happens next. And, like, keep... So he did, he did a really good job yeah, with that. Yeah, most definitely. Like when they go to like uh, when they go to Switzerland and they do the whole bank thing, and then they got to escape the bank yep. in the back of the truck. Like all that's very very satisfying. Yeah, from an for sure. Um, thing I wanted to hint on, and I know that I'm just like kind of it's turning into like railing this book for a lot of things it did poorly, but uh, something that stuck out to me was had very flat characters. Like I realized this in certain conversations where it'd be three or more characters is you could interchange any one of them 
any one of them could say anything else that was happening with the exception of T-Bring, the British guy. I thought he was the only non-fight character. He he kind of like, I'll say this, that is a, a symptom of many of his books. And, and one of the things that I realized, even as a kid, is that you can tell who the, the villain is. Because all the villains in his novels are secret villains. They're like presented first as allies course, and then yeah. they turn into villains. And you can always tell who they are because they're way more three-dimensional than the people around them you're like nope you got too much depth you're definitely a bad guy his his female counterpart he always encounters like a you know a really hot really capable woman (laughs) to assist him who's like a cop or whatever those are all interchangeable yeah it's always just langdon and his opposing force is always who it comes down to uh in the in angels and demons it's the the pope's like number one right hand man who's doing the whole thing in this book it's tebring who's one of robert langdon's oldest friends um yeah i agree with you i will say one of the critiques that i heard about the characters was i'm gonna give you two one was i did hear some people critique the use of female characters the only female character in the entire novel is supposed to be really knowledgeable but like doesn't really know shit and is constantly just like she is the she is the voice of the audience be like what does that mean but it was just something worth pointing out i don't know if i agree with the criticism but somebody was like yeah his representation of women were not well, especially for a novel that's like built around the concept of like they've erased women yeah. like this you know the entire preface of this thing is that like the vatican and the catholic church have fundamentally undermined the position of women in the early church and the role of women in christianity and faith as a whole and you know early pagans and early christians were much more had a much more reverence for the powers of of you know the feminine side of our species and then his only prominent female character is just kind of like boy you're so smart robert the whole time you're just kind of like weird dude like you're doing a lot of virtue signaling but you don't seem to know that much about women or, or hang out with that many. So that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a it weird It was weird. One. Like, it, you um, know, all of, all of his characters at time would be like, he'd meet some expert or he himself would be an expert, but then like, wouldn't know shit. Like that happened a few different times. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, but the other thing I wanted to bring up was, uh, what is the name of the monk, the albino monk? I just don't know how to pronounce it. It's definitely, uh, S-I-L-A-S. Okay, Silas. Let's just say it's Silas. Um, yeah, I'm so not one good. to just when it comes to my like social awareness meter, I'm I'm definitely more like I I will miss things. I'm not somebody who's like inherently like, wow, that was a problematic thing that they just did. When I was reading this character, even I was just like, Man, they're really going all in on the fact that he's albino. Like they would not shut up about I, that. I, I I felt like that was a very weird decision. I, I get it. You wanted to create a character who was an outcast and you wanted to like make it so that he was a permanent outcast and could, you know, that was kind of his identity. And so when he found Opus Dei, it was, and Catholicism in general, it was the first time in his entire life that he'd been accepted. And so that formed such a incredibly powerful bond that he was willing to go to extreme lengths to protect, you know, this thing that had become his entire identity. But the decision to go with albinoism as, you know, I, I felt like you could have gone with, any number of physical defects like you know he or just say he was like an imposing like you can there's other ways i mean i don't know if dan brown can pull this off but like there's other ways to write a character that is imposing or that is scary he doesn't even have to be a large character he could just like by his personality and his stoicism or like he could just be a cold character like you don't have to make him a six foot five albino guy but he was going off about that and i thought that was really weird and then even with in and again we're kind of rehashing here, but like in respect to Opus Day, he effectively took every bad story that had ever come out about that organization and embodied it into one human being and made that an identity. Which like you're talking about an organization that has thousands of people in it and, you know, ten bad stories over the course of 50 years and then made those 10 bad stories all happen as you know in the space of 48 hours with one human being enacting all of them uh thereby making them kind of like an evil organization that's that's a stretch for sure i mean and you know sam you know me i'm not going to be first in line to defend ultra conservative catholicism as like a stance but like you know be fair like that's not yeah and and maybe there's a little bit of a place for that i i do feel when you're writing a character that is the opposite stance of you, it's very important to be like, give them credence. Like you don't want to, you do not want to straw man 
the other side, right? You almost you almost want them to be. Uh, you almost want to write someone that's like, you know, not maybe not. I don't even want to use the word sympathetic. Just like like I always. This is a, just the first example I'm thinking of. But like when in the movie Black Panther, I thought they did a really good job writing a villain that people came away from being like, yeah. you know what, he had a point. You know what I mean? Like even though he was the opposite and his methods were bad, like many people came out of the theater being like, I could see where Killmonger was coming from. And in this, instead of writing a character where you were like, you know what, like the dude was wild and he was out here doing crazy shit, but you have to admit that he had a good point about, you know, you you want to make your character real enough to where a normal human being could identify with that perspective, whereas he just wrote like, yeah, a shadowy villain, where it's like, unless someone's a sociopath, they weren't going to be like, yeah, I like that guy. That guy's doing the Lord's work for sure. it was to the point where I like one of my favorite things about not only writing, but like when I'm consuming a piece of media is I love when there is a little bit of moral ambiguity. It can be clearly defined who the good guy and the bad guy is, but I like when good guys have their morals or their values strained. And then when bad guys have like very compelling reasons as to how they became a bad guy, they, they had about a 10 or 15 page chapter, maybe longer in this book showing silas's background but the thing is is that he was such a one-dimensional character that i didn't i don't give a shit about his background like he doesn't like i'm not compelled to read a guy's background story if he's not a compelling character at all so like i guess that kind of comes down to one of my overarching criticisms of this novel is between the descriptions between the flat characters like the the aside where they give you a 15 page summary of silas's life like this book was like 500 pages long. It easily could have been 400 pages or 380. Like they could have cut down on so much sure. stuff because it was it was a lot of word vomit. Like especially with like I cannot stress to you when I was when I got to a chapter where I was about a page and a half in where I was like, "Oh, are they really going to show me this monk's background?" Cuz I don't give a shit about him. Like I hope he realizes that. It was very frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I will say that I think what this novel really shows me is that you can you can lack a lot of like the fundamental technical skills of being a writer and if you bring a tremendous interest about a specific subject that is going to be interesting to other people and you can write it in such a way that it's very like gripping to the average reader, man, you can you can end up with a pretty pretty decent project because like if you told someone off rip it's like yeah the characters aren't great the description is kind of off it's a little longer than it needs to be the conclusions that it comes to are maybe a little wacky and it's not made clear what is real and what is fake you'd be like does this suck it's like actually you know it's not bad you know what i mean like, overall the project's pretty good um i think that's a that's a testament to the the fact that he brought he did was able to bring a level of intensity to the action and the pacing that made it an enjoyable read for me anyway even this last time going back through it which it wasn't as good as when i read it as a kid um i I think i've just read better stuff as an adult than then and obviously i've read it before but the first time i read it it really was one of those books that i think i tried to consume like in one sitting because it was just like oh my gosh i i really want to know what happens next it was really interesting to me so yeah i thought he did a good job it's definitely paced the way that it is easy to churn through the pages and one of the fun things about reading a a page turner is you can sit down for like an hour and then be like oh i read 60 pages and you feel like you've earned something a little bit so it's not a slog of just like yeah um i know i I dogged on it for like its descriptions but you skim those and then you get to the good stuff and then he'll hit he'll hit stride eventually and it's like reveal 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 like twist reveal and it's and it gets really it starts to flow so that that party did really well um you know i i was talking to a guy in my writing group about this novel who write he writes um very much like this like uh airport fiction mystery thrillers for an adult audience um his is nothing like this in terms of like prose uh it's not the same it doesn't revolve nearly in the same world his is more about like uh like corporate malfeasance, he he obviously was not a huge fan of the novel, but he was and he was like, you know, this is sure. He's like, with all due respect, this is a McDonald's cheeseburger because if you never really have cheeseburgers, never really have fast food, you'll eat it and you'll be like, that was that was pretty good. Like I want to have another one of those, but then you start to like kind of feel weird afterwards, and then maybe you have other cheeseburgers, and then you'll look back and be like, 
that wasn't that great. But then occasionally you get a hankering for it, and you're like, man, I really would love sure. to consume a McDonald's it's cheeseburger. A good description. Like, I know there's 20 other cheeseburgers out there that are better, but I have a specific hankering for that. And that's kind of where I think this falls. And the cost is higher for other cheeseburgers. Just like, I mean, this yeah, is cheap yeah. reading. You know what I mean? Like, you don't need to, you don't need to do a lot of, like, it's not difficult to get through, like, kind of what he's building here. It's not a difficult read. This isn't reading Shakespeare. Like, you're not going to have to sit down and do a lot of thinking. It's mindless. But in, in a, in a, again, in a good way. Like, and again, I, I, I think that that is probably what Dan Brown was aspiring to, is, like, white guy airport fiction is right in his wheelhouse. And I'm sure he's more than happy to be on every yeah. airport bookshelf in oh, the yeah. history of time. He's probably still counting them up. I was just reading a... Uh... I don't know what his net worth is, but I just saw that in 2005, like I was just reading his bio, in 2005 alone, he made like $75 million, which I think that's the year that the movie came out, which makes sense, but... He's got $250 bucks. And see, like, I know this, I mean, this is purely coming from a place of jealousy, but that makes me mad. <laughs> that's capitalism, man. Like, it's not about who, it's not about earning it. It's just he who can, I mean, yeah, like... Heroin dealers make a lot of money too. You know what I mean? They're horrible for society. <laughs> like, well, and, and like, I mean, dude, one of the one of the richest writers ever, Tom Clancy, dude. Like, I I am one of the biggest Tom Clancy fans you'll ever find. I will openly admit, dude, not a good writer. Like, his books are not well written. Like, eighty percent of the page volume is just like equipment porn, where it's just like he stepped out of the helicopter, the MH twenty seven five B helicopter. On his feet were the 26B combat boots. And then he strapped on his, you know, 1911 with the Model 26X silencer. Like, that's 90% of the volume of every Tom Clancy book. It's just, like, describing cool guns and equipment and then shooting the same six kinds of bad guys with them. But, dude, he did it for, like, you do... If you are able to do that well, I mean, that's what the average person reads. I mean, I remember seeing a stat that, like, the average American adult reads on a 7th grade level. So, like, this is great. This seems highbrow to them. It doesn't have any words that are going to confuse them that much outside of, like, the names of Italian places or French places. Very consumable, what makes you feel smart. It's great. I mean, I think every author, myself included, like, thinks they're a better writer than they are. They, they sure. Like, yeah. any, any writer that I've met would... I think any artist, dude, is fundamentally... I mean, if you have made the decision that you want to make something and put it out in the world for public consumption, you have to be like a little bit... Have a little bit of an ego. You're like, what I have... What I produce is worth other people taking the time to consume. Like, I'll I'll put it this way. I think that of the writers that I've met, I think at least like 30 to 50% of them think they're at least on par with Stephen King, which is probably not true. And literally all yeah, of that, the... that seems crazy. <laughs> and all of the writers I've met think they're a better writer than J.K. Rowling. Yeah. I mean, not hard to believe. Um, um, well, it's like every... how What what percentage of rappers think they're a better rapper than Drake? 100%? <laughs> like, And they might be, but like, you know, there's, there is a... Uh, writing a hit is a skill. You know what I mean? Like... Well, well, Dan Brown. But what what percent of rappers think they're better than Coily Ray? Well, pff, zero if they're smart. Yeah, let's say. But yeah, I mean, there's a. I think will 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 his novels be studied in like literature classes? Absolutely not. But shit, dude, two hundred fifty million dollars. There's there. It, it's the it's the eternal question of artists. Do you want to be the guy that makes five masterpieces while you starve to death, and then after you're dead, they realize that you were the greatest to ever do it? Or do you want to be the guy that everyone shits on, you know, Thomas Kincaid, who, like, makes terrible paintings that old people put in nursing homes, but you're worth a billion dollars, and so you're like, yeah, feel free to send your fucking complaint to my mansion. I'll be at my vacation home. You know what I mean? Like... That was the point I was about to make is, uh, like, I was prefacing all that stuff about, like, writers think they're better than they are. Be like, probably on paper, I think I'm a better writer than Dan Brown. But at the same time, I will, I would trade in my... Yeah, whatever skill <laughs> I would definitely trade in my writing and podcast career to have been Dan Brown in terms of commercial success. Well, and, and what's nuts is you know that because he is that huge, there definitely are people that, like, interact with him that are, like, the Da Vinci Code's the best novel ever made. Like, that's just the nature of human power and how we interact with people. Oh, nobody, I mean, even if I, like, if I was at some convention and, like, Dan Brown was over there, like, and I had a chance to talk to him, I wouldn't be like, hey, by the way, you suck. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just just dog him to his face. So, 
well, that's the combination of that and the fact that he's probably surrounded by yes men is yeah. Well, that's you know, that's why you want like the really cool mic. praise when you're a nobody. Like the the dream, my dream, and any time I've ever written anything is like I the story of you know again go back to Tom Clancy. He wrote the Hunt for Red October while he was an insurance salesman. Like he would at night write the Hunt for Red October. And that's nuts. While he was still selling insurance, that novel somehow ended up in the hands of Ronald Reagan, who on national television, someone saw the book sitting on his desk and they're like, Oh, are you reading that? And he's like, Yeah, The Hunt for Red October. It's a perfect yarn. And that like launched this man into the stratosphere. Because I mean, dude, the, I did gi- not the know Gipper that. tells the nation, because this is at a time, you know, 1985, like there aren't, there aren't three channels, but there aren't a hundred. And People liked Reagan. Right. So, like, when he was like, this right. book slaps, dude, it was a wrap from there. And by the time he died, I mean, Tom Clancy owned, like, more land in the state of Maryland than, like, almost anyone. He had a giant estate where he would, like, drive Sherman tanks around and shit. Like, super rad life. So, yes, absolutely sign me up for that, dude. I don't care what anyone thinks. Because, of course, like, people that get published in, like, the Princeton Review and, like, are, you know, truly incredible writers that, like, you know, technically brilliant will like be studied by other writers on how they constructed prose. They shit on Tom Clancy and they shit on Dan Brown too, but they're also fucking going to Burger King. So, you know, pick your poison. Yeah, that's what I was about to say is I another novel I was I was recommended uh a few years back was All the Light We Cannot See and I don't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but All the Light We Cannot See won the Pulitzer Prize, like it's a it's it is a literary novel like it is it's very yeah. well written um that that writer just came out with another novel called cloud cuckoo yeah cloud cuckoo land cloud. i see it everywhere it's huge yeah 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 that's what it's called so uh same author so all the light we cannot see is a book that is really fun to read because it is so well written but the premise sucks like it's just about a blind girl living in uh france like uh, northeastern france i believe and a german little boy that's in the german uh army in world war ii and they're both like experiencing i believe they're experiencing like the last day of their life like they're about both both about to get bombed and it's just like paralleling their life and it's just not like nothing really happens like it's just kind of they're they're like in the same they're both in like the same house or the same two houses like the entire novel essentially and it's it's kind of the exact opposite of this where not a lot happens but it's fun to read and uh it's well written and by the end you kind of feel like you've had a you had a really good chicken seether salad we're like man that was not the best meal i had but i feel really good about reading that whereas this is like yeah, I was entertained 75% of the time, but God, that was gross. Yeah, like, and that's, that's I think that's the weird balance that all as writers and all artists strike is, you know, like, on some days, I'm sure Dan Brown wants to be the guy that wrote Infinite Jest. You know what I mean? Like, this just... I think he thinks he's that. If you watch his interviews, like, I, I think really he thinks watched he's, that, but, like, a okay, bomb writer. Bad, bad, bad choice of, of example then, but, like, you know, I think writers... Many of them, right, want, I do. Yeah, they, they want on some days they want to be the guy that wrote Infinite Jest or the Great Gatsby or you know the next great American novel, effectively. Yeah, you. I mean, use use me as an example because like I I write uh, children slash YA fiction and like I know I'm not putting out. I know I'm not. I do not exist in the literary like, right. plane of existence. But like, yeah, I'm not going for that. But again, it's like man, like the people that there's so few people that like do that make that kind like an impact in that space and then also live this just like you know that end up madly crazy successful and wealthy like that's such a rare combination of things for the most part you got to pick one right like respect and integrity or money (laughs) and like you know shit man i don't like it but uh sign me up for writing twilight you know what i mean like i'll take it like (laughs) that's why i guess that's why i'm not a real writer is because that's my that's my choice so yeah man it's an interesting case study i feel like we've me particular have sufficiently kind of shit on this book but you know ultimately it's it's i'll say this when i write i have i have a lot of things that i keep in mind a lot of like technique and things but i have one really guiding principle is it has to be entertaining if what i'm writing if if i'm reading it back to myself and i'm like man this is this is boring then that's like the cardinal sin and i will say there's not really other than the silas chapter which was totally unnecessary like you can't really take a 50-page part of this novel and be like, that was really boring. Yeah. You can you can nitpick at its technique or his writing style or, the like, the 
you know the fact that he calls it facts and it's not facts uh but well we what we just did uh, here is a big part of why this novel was such an insanely huge hit because it was controversial like the yeah. it's a page turner that a lot of, that anyone can pick up and and will be probably pulled into and it has so many things that people wanted to like argue about and as we've learned in since the time that this book was written like dude nothing will move more units sell more albums get more clicks than things that people want to get mad about and this book made a lot of people mad whether it was for you know religious reasons literary reasons etc and dude every single one of those people that were mad including ourselves that's one sale you know what i mean like that's that's another number on the sheet so are you willing to go on the record and say that dan brown is the jake paul of authors oh man Ah, dude, Jake Paul to me is just, like, such a bottom feeder of a human being. I don't think, man, like, Dan Brown didn't, like, openly scam his own readers or anything. Like, that'd be really tough for me. I put him, like, a level above that. He's, like, the David Dobrik of of authors. Um, Fair. But, uh, man, again, like, I feel like I've shat on this guy so much and his book. I, I like this book. Like, I like if, if someone just, like, randomly was like, hey, have you read The Da Vinci Code? I'd be like, yeah, I liked that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't have a negative opinion of this yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. What, what are you giving this out of 10? I'm interested. A four. Really? Okay. Yeah, and, and, and it's not like, it's a four that I'm kind of teetering towards like a five. Because it's, dude, again, it does, yeah, I'll give it a five. I, I don't feel comfortable giving it a four. Because a five, because again, my, like I said, my guiding principle is like, was it entertaining? Like, if that is the pass or fail question here, was it entertaining? It was entertaining. But, like as a writer, I'm sitting there mad. <laughs> like I was mad as I was reading it. As far, like I literally was like going back to the front of the novel, being like reading his snippet about like all the documents and descriptions of historical events are true, and I'm like, and then I go back and re- reread what I wrote, and it's like, God, oh, it's just like, uh, it could get it got a little bit, you know, fuzzy. But uh, yeah, I mean, I would not like. I'll, I'll put it this way: if if this book was not popular at all and I happened upon it at a bookstore or I picked it up off, you know, Twitter or something like that, and I read it, I would probably not tell a single person about it. I would just be like, oh, okay. And then I put it on my bookshelf, never read it again, and then 10 yeah. years from then I would read it. That's so hard for me to know, you know? It was such a huge deal that it's impossible for me to know now. Especially, I read this book when I was like 14, so I have no idea how I'd yeah. react to organically discovering this book. I think I'd give it like a seven. Uh, I greatly enjoyed this book, uh, for the most part. Um, I again, it's it's written. It hits a lot of topics that I'm very interested in. I I'm a big art guy. I love like mysteries surrounding art, particularly um, stolen art, questions about the provenance of art, questions about why an artist produced a particular piece of work or how or why. I love all those things. This taps into that. My own religious journey and spiritual journey has been very complicated, and this hits a lot of like interesting beats in that world as well. And I, I came away from it satisfied as from an adventure standpoint. Um, viewing it purely as a work of fiction, I'm certainly not about to like, uh, you know, testify to its <laughs> accuracy. I, I definitely like that was one thing that that I think got held against it a lot is that like. I agree with I, I certainly and I agreed with you and I said it myself that like he lines up things that are fact and things that are fiction next to each other and doesn't delineate well. I do think that people a lot of people came at this book as if it was a documentary and they were like I'm going to debunk this book and you're just kind of like well man like it's a novel yeah. like I that's taking it a little serious for me. But he told but he says at the beginning this is based on like all the all the documents all the historical figures they're all fa- it's all based on facts sure it's all facts. sure so i mean if if that's where he opens himself up for criticism. i i totally agree i also feel like if people brought that same energy to daily life about the accuracy of of you know quotes and stances we'd be in a very different place in society so like overall again it's a mediocre it's like a mediocre novel but like it's a fun adventure and i enjoyed it and it was enough to get me to read another uh novel with the same character i think i liked robert langdon enough um i liked the idea of like a a stuffy academic who's been behind a desk that's pulled into absurd situations i thought that was a cool concept yeah i i don't think i'll I, I do I do know that I, I read like this, Angels and Demons and 
the alien one and then this other one inferno and then again once you've done three of these you've kind of done them all like they're kind of all similar in that vein they're always like averting large disaster by blah 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 blah. i mean he literally tells you that yeah yeah that's fair remember you're like i i've been here before yeah i've, I've experienced this exact same plot before. very fair so yeah the uh other than that i yeah i'd say it's i'd say it's like a a seven uh you could do way worse on a like a if you have a ten hour plane flight and you're in the airport like what's on the airport shelf you could do way worse than this I've read horrid novels off For the sure. airport shelf and this is significantly better than that so yeah that's that's why I raised the score because I started thinking about all the books I'd kind of picked up on a whim that I couldn't get past like page sixty oh dude like, I've done sucks. I've done that so bad like. I'm such a sucker for cover art, you know what I mean? Like, it's like this yeah, looks cool, too. you know? And then it's like, oh, it's not. It's definitely not. Like, yeah. You read the back of it. Like, I'll read the, before I buy a book, it's like, sometimes, I, actually, I would say 90% of what I read is recommended. And then I'll, when, if I'm picking up something in the store, I'll look at the cover. I'll read the back. I don't care about the quotes, because those can be picked up. Those can be picked up so easily. <laughs> read this book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> read this book. Uh... I and then I'll read the first like line and then maybe the first chapter depending on the length, and if it has me gripped, I'll I'll, I'll buy it. Yeah. Um. But oftentimes, like you'll read the first chapter and you'll be like, "Oh, this is interesting." And then the direction they go in, and the depth of the characters is garbage, and you're just like, "Nah, this is bad." Man, this is so funny. I'm <laughs> I'm on his Wikipedia page, and Stephen Fry has referred to Dan Brown's writings as complete loose stool water and arse gravy of the worst kind. In a live chat on June 14, 2006, he clarified, I just loathe all books about the Holy Grail and Masons and Catholic conspiracies and all of that body dribble. I mean, there's so much more that's interesting and exciting in art and in history. It plays to the worst and laziest in humanity, the desire to think the worst of the past and the desire to feel superior to it in some fatuitous way. That's really well put. Stephen Fry can be a little. It is really well put. That's not how I felt. That's not how I felt. But like that is a great point to be made. Is certainly yeah. And and I will say this. I don't think either of us took it this way. But this does for this is for sure the kind of media that like nut jobs take in and it forms part of their personality. Like the same people that were like worried about pizza places in D.C. and watching. 4chan for Q drops, love the shit out of the Da Vinci Code. And I'm sure they figured out a way to make it anti-Semitic. <laughs> so, like, yeah, definitely there is a there's a way to make this very evil if you're the wrong kind of person. So, fortunately, that wasn't And, and I will say this, like, I, I write in fantasy terms. So, like, I operate in a world where I can write about, you know, something completely nonsensical happening. And then I can just shrug and be like, well, it's in my world it, ha- it can happen like that. Yeah. Or I can... I don't have to ask myself the historical accuracy. I can just be like, well, that's how it happened in my world, so haha. And uh, I didn't have to worry about being wrong. I, again, it goes back to it's not that he was wrong, it's that he said he was right. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I, I, this is also well put now that I'm going through all these. Uh, this guy from the San Francisco Chronicle said, um, There's many criticisms of this work, and many of them have tons of merit. Uh, some of them might ruin the story for certain readers. But the story has so many twists. All of them are satisfying. Most of them are unexpected. Um, it would be a sin to reveal too much of the plot in advance. Let's just say uh, this novel does a great job get your, getting your pulse racing. I think that's that's well put. Like, if yeah, yeah. I give it that. Yeah, if you can get if you went into this expecting like, and you'd be you could definitely be forgiven because you read that first quote from him. If <laughs> you went into this novel expecting like this high degree of historical accuracy, uh, religious accuracy. Um, that could absolutely hurt your feelings. If you, if that doesn't, if that just kind of goes past you and doesn't leave a a bad taste in your mouth, there's certainly a a fun adventure to be had here. And that's probably the best thing you can say about this book. Yeah, totally agree, man. I, I, I think, you know, we, we obviously have come to different scores and we probably are different in terms of like whether or not we would recommend this novel, but I think you agree and understand all my criticisms. I agree and understand all of your all the things you enjoyed about it. I think that we just we are putting different values on those things, yeah. and I I think that's a cool I think that's a cool uh, conclusion for us to come to. Most definitely, and, and I think uh, 
Dude, I, I, I definitely think, and we've already seen this with other works we've done on this podcast, this podcast would suck if it was just us being like, we both feel the same way about everything we watch uh, or, or read. Um, and dude, I honestly, I, I was really looking forward to this because I thought, I definitely know that you're going to bring a very different writing perspective on this one. And because you are such a higher level writer than I am, and you have a very different relationship to the faith elements of this work. And so I was very much looking forward to hearing from you on both of those, and it was incredibly satisfying on both fronts. So I'm su- I was super stoked was, about this. Was this, was, awesome. our, was this our first novel discourse? This was our first discourse about a novel, actually. Yeah, pretty dope. Tune in next we'll week to, for we'll have to uh, pick another novel. Soon. Yeah, we're gonna do Infinite Jest next week. It's gonna be 16 hours long, and it's gonna be painful. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for our three part episode on the Le- director's cut of Lawrence of Arabia. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, dude, no joke. We can just turn into one of those podcasts. A minute-by-minute minute d- d- dissection of Lawrence of Arabia. We would get pulled from Apple Podcasts. <laughs> uh, but no, this was awesome, man. This was awesome. Yeah, it was fun, man. Well, anyways, thank you so much for listening. As I said earlier, like and subscribe and follow us and give us a rating. We we greatly appreciate all of your support and tell two friends. As always, this is Novel Discourse, and I'm Sam. I'm Andy. Until next time, peace. Peace.